Welcome to the Slapback Indie Show. Hey, what up? Welcome back to the Slapback Indie Show. Uh, so I know that if you're listening to this in like a string of episodes, this is going to be another interview that we have coming up, but it's not just going to be, it's not just a another interview. This interview that I have today is with James. He is from Band Hive. The man, the man is a, is a legend. He is, uh, I've known James for a bit now, a little while, and just, I don't know, I'm always impressed by how sharp he is on top of everything, strategy and tactics and just his outlook and mentality. Uh, it's, it's nice and warm. So James, thank you for, for coming on to the Slapback Indie Show. I appreciate it, man. How are you doing? All right, Richard, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I think you're being far too kind. <laughs> I appreciate it, though. And uh, things are good here. Um, I'm having a good start to the week. Well, I guess it's Wednesday. But that's how good the week is. I don't even realize it's already Wednesday. <laughs> that's right. That's right. If it's yeah. Wednesday and it feels like a Monday afternoon, then you're doing okay, right? Yeah. Like, things are looking up. Exactly. So, James, for everyone listening, let's kind of just give a, a quick backstory of who you are and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. I like to say I'm a jack of all trades, master of none, which I think <laughs> is very true. Uh, I've done a little bit of everything. I started out in radio, then got into audio, then did some work in touring, specifically um, stuff like sponsorship, merch management, a um, little bit of tour management for smaller acts, that kind of stuff. And then for the past few years, I've been doing basically business logistics almost entirely. And with Bandhive, that's what we focus on is helping artists, DIY artists specifically, to figure out what they need in place to make their businesses run more smoothly and efficiently, and especially when it comes to touring, because all three of the co-hosts that are on our podcast, myself, Aaron Jingris, and Matt Hose, have touring backgrounds. We've all done Warp Tour at one point or another. Matt did it for like seven years, I think, or something like that. Insane. Oh my God. I did it for like two and a half, and that was enough. And um, That's like a whole lifetime. Like I feel like seven years of Warp Tour experience is an entire human life in its own weird shell. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Aaron, our other co-host, was the production coordinator for a very famous act who unfortunately we're not allowed to mention he's trying to keep that under wraps but you know like an amphitheater i love the nda shout out that's, yeah, yeah. that's perfect <laughs> that's the type of clout that we need here perfect I, thank you james yeah, no worries uh he did that for i want to say five years as well and he stopped just like a year before the pandemic hit so great timing on his end for that but he's still doing stuff for his own band as well um, working on getting things going there. And so we all have backgrounds in touring and production. Matt has some marketing backgrounds, but the main thing is we're just talking about logistics and simplification and systemization of what you're doing in a band. And yeah, we'll talk about other topics once in a while, but the main focus is if you do something more than once, have a process in place for it. If you're new to touring, set up a process this way. This is how you should structure your budget. and Just an overview of what the best practices are to not mess up and learn from your mistakes and instead learn from our mistakes. 
Okay, so just that whole topic of systemization, that can be extrapolated to different industries or different interests and, and passions. But I feel like within music, especially independent music, it is just like, it is so bare bones for some people just out of being overwhelmed. And so I, what a great utility, especially for the touring world, because I want to say like, there must be a, a ton of buzz right now over just the touring industry in general. And that whole sector of the arts, if you will, is is facing a really big moment right now, just with everything being halted. So if that if touring is your focus, how are you handling what's going on right now? It was definitely tough because by the time the pandemic hit last March, we were about 10 episodes ahead pre-recorded. So that's like two and a half months. And so I just edited them and added a caveat saying like, hey, this was recorded before the pandemic hit. But, you know, it still totally applies when we come back. And then since then, we've pivoted a lot more to like mindset kind of stuff. We've done a little bit of marketing, but we try not to do that too much because that's what every so-called music industry guru talks about. And there's enough of that noise out there. We don't need to add to it. So yeah, we'll touch on it once in a while, but we try to stay away from it. One of my favorite episodes was we did an episode about stage fright over the summer because guess what? That can apply to a live stream too. And um, we actually had Ryan Cohen of Robot Dog Studio who did a bunch of really nice looking live streams and really nice sounding live streams, more importantly. Uh, We had him on to talk about what he basically does and and how artists can do that for themselves, some of the quick tips that he might have. And of course, the best tip is if you're in Vermont or the surrounding area, just hire Ryan to do your live stream. But if you're in, you know, Nashville or London or somewhere, that's not practical. And there's some cool tips in that episode. Uh, Another one that I really enjoyed was we had Howie Spangler from Ballyhoo. And they've been around for... 25, almost 26 years now. So we had Howie talk about what it's like to be in a band for 25 years with only a handful of member changes and what made it last so long. And uh, that was a really fun episode too because they also do some really killer live streams. So we had him talk about that. So we've been pivoting a little in different directions, trying to focus on mindset, like I said, and also fan relationships because doing live streams is what you have to do to keep those relationships growing right now. Uh, we also had an episode with Aaron Zimmer from Least of All Records, which is really cool because they do one-of-a-kind uh, lathe cut vinyl pressings. So basically, Dang. they do pre-sales, and however many pre-sales you do, you record a one-take song for that specific person. So you can be like, you know, hey, Jenny, thanks so much for buying this record. I'm so glad that you enjoy this song, whatever it's called. Here it is. And then you do like a one-take acoustic take and send it off to them as uh, a WAV file, and they will cut it to a record and send it to Jenny, I think it was I said. I don't know. I just I made up a name. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I just want to say I want to unpack a lot of this because I think that it may be controversial in in certain ways to talk about touring right now but also i feel like this is probably the time to to start talking about it and honestly man i think that pivoting into breaking into topics of mindset is probably actually really valuable right now due to the fact that that's where 
we're being relegated to on the touring front. There's there's literally nothing you can do about it. And the only thing that artists can control in terms of looking out to touring is their outlook and their mentality about it and how they choose to move forward. And that comes from like a, I don't know, that comes from inside your soul a little bit. And so I wouldn't even say that that's as much of a pivot as that's just you guys serving your audience and answering a question that a lot of people have. So for that, I commend you guys because I think you guys do a great job in explaining how that works and like being able to correlate stage fright from playing live to live streams. Like I would argue that stage fright is bigger on live streams because there's no more faces that you can read. You can't hear people clapping. You can't hear people booing at you. They just (laughs) click on or they click off, you know, like you don't, there's so much less that you can pick up from it. So I think that it's cool that you, you guys are able to make like real life parallels between the real world and this like digital world that we're all blended up in uh, because everyone's dealing with it, but especially right now, indie artists are. So all that to say, I think your podcast is killer and I love how you guys do it all. Um, That was just a big compliment. So, well, thank you. That's super appreciated. That was a long answer around (laughs) to a compliment, but I like doing my due diligence. Okay. So now that we know where you are actively What's your story? Yeah, definitely. So like I mentioned earlier, I got started in radio. It was a little community radio station. And uh, I was actually in high school at the time still. And my dad said, hey, you should go do this. Like become a DJ because you love music. And I was like, eh, nah. (laughs) Typical kid right there. Typical teenager. Yeah, I think I was 15 at the time. That's 16. Too cool for radio. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially a small community radio station that no one's ever heard of. Um, mm-hmm. But so I ended up... And this up, is in Vermont, right? Yeah, this is WGDR Plainfield at Goddard College, which is a college full of hippies. And, um, well, at least it was back in the 70s. Now it's like there's no one there because they do all online stuff. And uh, anyway, I got talked into it, and I did it, and I loved it. And it opened me up to a ton of really awesome opportunities. I started working with radio promoters and record labels and all the kinds of people who are like, hey, you know what? We'll send you free stuff if you play our song on the radio, which totally not how it goes. It's more like, oh, hey, thanks so much for playing our song on the radio. Where can we send your free stuff? Because they're not allowed to like bribe you. That's illegal. But you know that if you play it, they are going to send you something afterwards. So that's just how the radio industry goes. Um, this is not payola. This is not right. Exactly. Is. It was not payola because it was not expected and was not offered in advance until they found out I was playing their stuff. Um, That's right. But it was really cool. Like going to fanboy a little bit. One of my favorite artists, I fight dragons out of Chicago. They actually called the station while I was on the air and were like, Oh my God, you played our song. Thank you so much. So I was like freaking out a little bit inside. And, um, but I also got to do other fun stuff. Um, like I interviewed AFI, who was my favorite band at the time when I was 16. Like, I I don't know how many other 16 year olds can say they interviewed their favorite band. And there were a bunch of other bands that I interviewed in like the next four to five years. But we also had live shows there. And so Mm. I started getting into live sound and ended up going to college for audio production and entertainment management. 
Note to anyone listening, I don't suggest going to school for audio production. I loved the professors, but the classes were awful because I knew everything already. And that's not me trying to brag. That's me saying that a lot of the people, and I should say this might be different in Nashville because Nashville is such a music city and the people who go there really want to do music. That is their dream. But this was in Boston, great little school called Bay State College. And most of the kids there were like, yeah, I'm a rapper and I don't know what to go to school for, so I'm going to do audio. And that just held all the classes back. And um, I, I think we had about 20 kids going in. And by the time I graduated, there were four of us in, left in the class. And uh, two of them were rappers, but they were actually really focused and they had the drive. And then there was me and one other guy who wanted to do uh, sound for film. And so a lot of that was because the more serious people either went to AI or Berkeley. And um, why do we have the same exact, <laughs> literally the same exact setup when it comes to formal education around audio? I literally graduated with five people. Yep. I believe two of which are artists, but it was like a class of 50. Why is that the same oh, all yeah. across the board? Yeah, I can't speak to other majors because I'm sure it happens in other majors. I just don't know how much. But the redeeming feature of this school was that the audio program was actually a division of the entertainment management program. And so that is where I learned about tour management and production management. And we started an internet radio station for the school. Only took us three and a half years, but we got it done right before my senior year and I graduated. And we uh, had a school venue that I got to, for my last two years, be the production manager of. And so that was all super fun. And then just kept networking with people, kept you know, doing the radio thing since I was involved with that. And I wish I had made better relationships from that specifically because I knew so many tour managers. I knew so many managers in general. I knew so many radio promoters. And uh, I should have really kept up with those people because that would have paid off a lot later when I started touring. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, so I just want to say, I'm going to interrupt real quick, but Mm -hmm. I just want to say that for anyone that's listening and wondering like, okay, like production manager, that's cool, but what does that mean? I I wanna give like a level of seriousness to this role because specifically in like the live entertainment world, if you're a production manager, that means you have your hand on a little bit of everything that's going on for an entire show whatever the show may be, audio, video, lighting. I mean, there's just so many facets within that. And so I just want to say that if you were doing that just in college, I feel like I feel like that sets you up for something bigger than you even know at that time. You know, like anyone that has done like live grunt work, had been in a venue being like, oh, this is cool. And not realizing like, oh, you need to follow up with that tour manager that came in because that's going to lead you to your next gig. And I don't know, that's a really important lesson that I wish I didn't have to learn the hard way. And I'm sure it's the same for you. Yeah. And it's, so we were a fairly small venue, but we ran it as if it was like a large club. 
because the professor who was like overseeing it for all of us had tour managed some big name acts that again, I'm not going to name drop them, but they are massive. And she was actually also the production manager for Central Park Summer Stage for I think like five years, including when they totally rebuilt the stage and like redesigned it. And so she was on the team that designed the round stage that they have now. And so she had very high standards for us, which was amazing. And then I would call up the artists to do an advance and they'd be like, what's an advance? And I'd have to explain the whole process to them and be like, so this is when I ask about your input list and your stage plot and like what you need and what you're bringing. And it was really a blast though. I had a lot of fun and we had a great team. And just to add to what you were saying, Richard, I should mention that there are two production managers. The venue will have a production manager and the artist will have a production manager. Now, a lot of times for smaller acts, that's going to be the tour manager is also the production manager, and they're doubling up on that. That's totally fine. But when you get up to like the arena or amphitheater level, that is such a big job that the tour manager is literally just the person that does everything. And then they oversee an accountant, a production manager, a uh, hospitality person that they link with at the venue all that kind of stuff. There's going to be assistance. There's, it's massive. There's so many moving parts there. Like there, there's so many moving parts happening all at once. Once you get to a big scale like that, Um, like when you, when listener, when you're sitting there watching a a concert, you're watching the artist, but you, you're realized like you have no idea that for every person performing on stage, there's probably at least 50 to a hundred to almost maybe even more in some cases, people behind the scenes, making sure that that works. And the tour manager, the TM is overseeing all of that. So the artist doesn't have to worry about it. Correct. Yes, exactly. The tour manager is there to basically babysit the artist. They are glorified babysitters that also have to do every other thing that pops up unless they have staff under them. So, you know, you might see, and and to be fair, usually at the smaller level, if you're doing like small clubs, your tour manager is going to call themselves a tour manager, but they're actually a road manager. The difference being that a tour manager will help be actively involved in the planning of the tour and the routing and all that kind of stuff. Whereas a road manager is hired by the management company and the management company did all the planning already. And the road manager is just doing day to day. Right. But everyone calls themselves a tour manager because that sounds better than road manager. <laughs> right. It's better on the resume. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so as a DIY artist, if you're doing this all yourself, you have to fill all of these roles. And Right. Those roles are still there. Like, they still the, the shit still needs to get done. So yeah. yeah. And, I mean, you're probably not going to be dealing with, you know, flying lighting trusses and bringing in your own PA system and all that kind of stuff if you're playing bars but you're still going to have to to a certain extent have an understanding of your setup and have a stage plot and an input list and know what time you have to leave the city the night before to get to the venue on time for loading and you know figure out where you're going to sleep all of these logistical things are still in play and that's what i realized even more so my uh between my junior and my senior year was the first time I did warp tour 
and I did it with a sponsor. So we were on one of the Warp Tour provided buses, and we were such a big team, we actually had the entire bus to ourselves, which was really nice, because they have other buses with 18 people on them, and because the standard bus has 12, but other buses have 18, and some of the bunks are just like fold-out bunks above a couch and stuff, and it's so cramped. So we were so lucky to have our own bus. And just seeing all the moving parts of Warp Tour, which had 20-something buses just for their people and sponsors, and then there's about another 150 to 180 vehicles, whether that's buses, vans, minivans, SUVs, or like a Toyota Camry, whatever it is, who were following along the tour. And those people all had to basically find their own hotels because Warp Tour would book a hotel on days off for all the crew, and that would be like the whole hotel. So they're like, okay, well, you're, you bands, you go off, find your own place. Good luck. Have fun. And um, so it was incredible to see the whole tour split apart for an off day and then come back together for the show the next day and seeing the logistics that go into it. It's incredible. You know, Kevin Lyman, who founded Warp Tour, I think he actually, uh, his business is now located in Nashville, even though he's in SoCal, unless they moved again. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, he was not the tour manager. He hired a tour manager. He was the guy who just walked around solving problems. And so, yeah. like, I've seen the guy pushing porta potties. Yeah, exactly. Like, hey, we need more porta potties over there. Okay, I'm going to help push porta potties. Kevin Lyman, who runs the tour, is pushing porta potties. Like, okay, you don't see that every day. Um, the first year, there were some issues with one of our bus drivers. We actually had three bus drivers over the summer. Long story there. The, the, the first guy was, he was great. Unfortunately, he had some health issues and had to go home. Next guy was a replacement who was actually a van driver but had a CDL and could drive buses. So that was interesting, waking up in a different city, and you're like, hey, you're not our driver. Like, where are we? <laughs> and then hearing, like, oh, yeah, your driver's in the hospital. And we're like, oh, I'm so glad that happened not while he was driving, but I'm also very glad he's okay, <laughs> which he's he's fine now. He came back to Warp Tour later. and oh, um, good. Good for like, him. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, not as our driver. We would have loved to have him back, but we had somebody else. Um, anyway, and then the third guy, super nice, but didn't really maintain the bus as he should have, from what I understand. And so we actually, like, somehow Kevin Lyman heard through the grapevine. No one told him, but he heard. And we had to have a meeting with Kevin Lyman about our bus driver and like we're all trying not to throw him under the bus no pun intended at all <laughs> and um but that's how involved Kevin Lyman was and his tour manager Lisa Brownlee was there too and uh they were basically there to make sure that Warp Tour is a good experience for everyone um Lisa has her hands full Kevin has his hands full they have an accountant as well they have I think four dedicated security people that travel with the oh tour. God. And I'm saying all this have, I should say had because yeah. RIP warp tour. Anyway. So I did that for a few years and, um, well, I just want to say like, I think that shows to scale what it can mean for any independent artist, like whether you're a solo artist or, or a full band. I think that just shows if you can properly prepare your your live show you know like 
if you can put just in the fundamentals, like you're, you're maybe not at a warp tour status yet and that's okay. But if you still put in the proper fundamentals of making sure you're on time, making sure the people that need to get paid, get paid, making sure your set is organized, you're good with the sound engineer, all this stuff. If you can do that, then the sky's the limit, you know, like that's what, that's what needs to happen before you take off. It's not like, it's not having a viral song. It's not getting picked up by a label. It's like, can you sustainably do your job as an artist and provide the value of the entertainment or, or whatever it is to your audience? And that role that Kevin Lyman experienced and, and you experienced man to a degree is super important. So tell us a little bit more of what that means. So you had that experience and how did that sort of propel you to where you are now? Yeah. Well, before I uh, jump into there, I should say, you know, before everyone tunes out thinking, oh, this is not relevant to me because like I'm not at that level. That's just one side of things. I also ended up doing a lot smaller tours. Um, you know, I, I did merch and driving for a tour where it was two solo artists, the manager for one of them and the merch guy for the other artist. So I was doing merch for one and then the other guy had a merch guy too. And, um, you know, that level, we were in a van getting hotels every night, which was nice. Like a lot of van tours, <laughs> you don't even get hotels. Right. Um, and then I've done stuff even smaller than that. Like this was just my friends, but I, uh, filled in on bass for their band and helped them tour manage a tour, just a weekend thing just for fun. So I could show them what it's like. And the last night we're driving home and I'm sitting on my laptop, like crunching numbers. And I'm like, hey, you guys made money. And they couldn't believe it because they'd never crunched the numbers before. So for me to say, hey, like you made 50 bucks in three days, they were ecstatic. Even though for me, it's like 50 bucks. Like, I mean, you covered your expenses, but 50 bucks divided by the three of you over three days, that's like you're earning like $4 a day. <laughs> Yeah, some fancy takeout or something to yeah, celebrate. Exactly. Or I guess I guess five thirty three would be their split, something like that per day. <laughs> um, but they were just so happy that they earned money, and I was able to point that out to them and give them all the numbers so they could look at it and uh, they could base future tours on that. And so it's really important for any level to really look at that. And I also want to say that. You know, you're totally right about viral songs, but also they can be a huge boost if you know how to harness that power and grow on that. So first thing you should do if you have a viral song is get people onto your email list. It sounds old, but get them on your email list. You have people talking about you, get email signups, offer them something. Don't just say, hey, here's our email list. If you went viral, say, okay, hey, like, if you sign up for our email list, you will get a download version of this song, which you probably just listen to it on Spotify, so that's not that special. But you'll also get these alternative versions that aren't on Spotify, so you can only get them by downloading them here. So you really should get these before this offer is gone. Like, you want to get these alternative versions so you can play them for your friends. Or something like that. Um, I Fight Dragons, who I mentioned earlier, for years, they have been offering their latest EP or album for free to anyone who signs up. The only time they didn't do that was when they were signed to Atlantic Records. 
And so it's so important to have systems in place like an email list before you go viral. Exactly. Because if you have to set that all up once you're viral, it's already too late and you're going to have to go viral again. Um, Another thing that is really important for social media is I know artists hate posting on social media. I see it all the time. The band that posts like twice a year. And uh, there are lots of major bands who are like that, although they're catching on now. Have systems in place for that. So you can use an app like Publer or Buffer to schedule all your social media posts. And yeah, Facebook has tools built in, but I like Publer and Buffer because they let you literally set your schedule for each platform. And then you just drag and drop content into a queue and it posts it in that order. And then it'll email you being like, hey, your queue's empty. Don't forget to add more posts. That's incredible. And so you literally never have to schedule anything consciously. You just say like, okay, like I have a post every day and I just added seven posts. We're good for the next week. And it'll just post them in that order. And obviously you can drag and drop the order if you want to change it. And you can still customize posts for certain times if you need to do that for your release schedule. But in general, if you're just doing like content during a normal week, you just keep it coming, keep it coming. And um, that's, you know, for Bandhive, we use Publer and Buffer. It's so handy and beats the hell out of scheduling manually on Facebook and especially Instagram where you can't schedule at all. Like they will schedule to Instagram posts, not stories. I just want to say that having something like that in place takes like, you can look at it with like the 80, 20 rule, right? You were probably spending 80, like your social content time was probably 80% of the time making and scheduling these posts out or figuring out, Oh, well I need to do this, this post and then this kind of post. And then I have to design it like this. And like, there's so much minutia in all of those little tasks that it probably amounts to 80% of your work. And if you can minimize that work down to 20%, it'll probably then boost your results by 80-ish percent, you know, speaking in terms of that equation, like it'll probably boost that and you will actually start seeing return on what's working in like a it'll be a real time thing that you can look at instead of having to like be in the thick of and figure out when you're just trying to figure out what to post. I love that, man. I think that that's a wonderful systemization. Thanks. Yeah. It's something that's definitely been handy for band hive and I've used it for lots of other things as well in the past. And one other thing I should mention is that artists shouldn't set out to create social media content. They should repurpose the content that they already have. So For example, let's say you just went into the studio and you were in a nice studio and it looks great. You're going to be tempted to post a picture saying, hey, we're in the studio. Do not do that. Take a bunch of pictures. Let me back up and say why you should not do that. Do not do that because you will post a picture of you in the studio and then that song is going to get edited and it's going to get mixed and it's going to get mastered. Once that's all done, you're going to set up your release plan. So you're probably looking at least four to six months ahead if you're doing an EP or an album. If it's a single, maybe not quite so much. But for an EP or album, you're going to be in the studio four to six months before that release. If you then wait four months before posting anything else and say, oh, hey, new song coming out in two weeks, what are you posting with that? People have forgotten about that post from you in the studio six months ago or four months ago or whatever it is. 
So instead, keep all that under wraps. Don't tell anyone you're in the studio. Just be mysterious about it. Post other content if you have it, you know, like throwbacks and, you know, little Q&As, live stuff, live sessions, anything that's relevant. But don't tip your hand. Once you are ready to promote the release, then you say, oh, hey, look, we're in the studio. In two weeks, there's a new song dropping the next day. Here's a video behind the scenes from what we did in the studio two days after that. Here's a little sneak peek of the bridge of the song. I bet you can't wait to hear the chorus. And you keep going, doing little snippets like that, using content that you already have. You're not going out and making, you know, like special TikTok dances or anything like that. Which, if you can do that, sure. But that's going to take so much more time than just saying, hey, this is us. You know, if you're in a band house and you live together, that's actually really advantageous right now during a pandemic when, depending on where you are, you might not actually be able to get together in the same room to practice unless you already live together. But use that to your advantage. Be like, yo, it's Friday. On Fridays, we have pancakes. Here's the whole band. Like, do you prefer Canadian syrup or Vermont syrup? Which, by the way, Vermont syrup is far (laughs) superior. But that's content right there. You're not creating anything special. You're literally just taking a picture of your breakfast with your band. Like, that's perfect to put out there and people can connect with that because they can say hey you know what i like pancakes i had pancakes yesterday these guys are cool well okay james this is what my intro was hyped about because i just want to say that your mentality and your outlook on how to engage like engage genuinely is just so acute I don't know any better way to say it than that. Like, I think that that is such a good point and to why you even post something in the first place, right? Like if you're not going to be intentional about it and if you go even deeper and not be formulaic about it, then all you're doing is just like, you're just waving a flag, just trying to say like, look at me. And then someone looks over, you have nothing to value And they keep moving on. They forget about it as soon as they swipe up or whatever. And then you're Mm -hmm. just, you, you think that you put in all this good effort and it's not getting noticed, but really you didn't put in a good effort. You just made something about yourself where the way that you describe it and the way that you have, you have a systemized approach to engaging people that would be interested in you. The way that you do that is just like, It's so inviting and it's not a, you don't make it about you. It's about your collective group. All that to say, incredible, actionable insight, James. That's wonderful. Oh my God. (laughs) Well, thank you. And it's funny because I'm actually really bad at doing exactly what I just talked about because I'm not the kind of person who is taking pictures of everything I do. You know, I, I even try, I'll be like, oh, I just made a really good pizza. Like, let me take a picture. And then I forget because right, I'm eating Because you're the pizza, hungry for you know? the pizza. Yeah. I think, I think we all struggle right. with that exactly. on, a, on a day-to-day <laughs> basis. But having something that is like in place that it can even just remind you, like having reminders set up on your phone or on your laptop, whatever. Like sometimes even having just that little of systemization is enough for you to like see the the trees beyond the forest you know what i mean like it gives you some perspective on why you're doing what you're doing so man that's incredible you explained it 
way better than I ever could. And that's why you're here. So I appreciate it. <laughs> I think you do a pretty good job at it, but I'll take the compliment. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, man. Okay. So I'm going to move on to another question. And this is mm-hmm. actually a, a good bend into, into where, we're, where we were and where we're going with this conversation. Because I feel like we got a good scale out view of who you are and what your purpose is and what you try to bring to the table, um, which I commend. I think you do a wonderful job at it. So for artists right now, right, it's we're in quarantine. People are stuck, like either producing alone or creating alone. Or like you said, if they're lucky enough to be in a band house, like, but they're still constricted to these walls. No one is actively touring right now. I don't know a single artist that is going on tours at this point in time. And I don't know how long we will be until that happens. But with that in place, what is, if you had one thing that you said, okay, to be ready for when touring comes back, indie artists need to do blank. What is that one thing that you would give them? That's really tough because it encompasses a lot of things, but essentially you need to plan the tour now. Wow. That's a bold statement right there. Yeah, it is and it isn't because I'm not saying go out and book the shows. I think that would be a (laughs) terrible idea. And a lot of places, at least smaller venues, wouldn't let you book that far in advance. You know, a lot of bars, clubs, coffee houses are looking like two to three months in advance. If they're busier, maybe four to six months in advance. Um, You better believe the big venues, like major artists, they book out a year and a half in advance. So they're already looking at 2022. And they're booking that stuff because they are hoping that the vaccine that's going out now is going to allow live music to return. And I think it was Dr. Fauci said we could see live music return in fall Mm -hmm. 2021. So fingers crossed, knock on wood, all that stuff. Here's hoping. But the thing is, if you plan your tours now you are going to have a head start compared to all the other artists who, when tours start opening up, say, oh, we got to plan a tour. Like, we got to do this. We got to do that. We got to do If you plan it out now, you do your budget. You do your routing. You pick where you want to play, like what types of venues, all that kind of stuff. You're going to be at least a week or two ahead of all the artists who haven't done that. The other thing that comes in with planning this is building relationships with promoters and venues now. Now, I know sometimes there's this kind of adversarial thing between talent buyers or promoters and artists because, you know, everyone thinks about the promoter that screwed them over one time and thinks like, oh, yeah, all promoters are terrible. No. Many are, especially at the smaller levels, but there's also a lot of really good people who just love music, and that's why they promote shows. It really depends. You got to feel that out. But so what you can start doing now is after you've planned out what cities you might want to hit and what venues you might want to play, you know, if you're going to do a coffee house tour because you're doing an acoustic thing, which might actually be a smart idea to start things up. You're not going to go play a crowded bar. You're going to do a coffee house where people are sitting down a little more socially distanced because Personally, I don't think it's going to open up all at once. I think it's going to start saying like, hey, you know, you can have limited capacity concerts and then like, okay, now, you know, you can open up outdoor concerts and then now, okay, finally, clubs can open up at full capacity, but that's going to be 
the last thing. Um, so if you're doing a coffee house show, okay, find out who books those coffee houses. Oh, and here's the other advantage. Coffee houses aren't impacted as badly as clubs by this. So if you grow relationships with the talent buyer at a coffee house, it's much more likely that they're still going to be in business eight to 10 to 12 months from now compared to a little venue that has no business right now and is relying purely on whatever assistance they can get. Um, we have seen some venues do really cool stuff where they are hosting live streams and getting a little bit of income from that, but it's been really tough on venues and it's been tough on promoters because if they can't promote shows and they're doing that full time, they're not making any money now. Um, so anyway, you build those relationships and just befriend them because then when it comes to be time to book shows, you already have your plan in place. You have two or three ideal venues in each city and you're already friends with the people at those venues. So they're probably going to view you favor. They're probably going to view you favorably compared to the artist that just reached out cold the day before. They're going to be like, well, you know, this guy's cool. I've been talking to him for like six months on and off. You know, we've chatted a little bit and checked in and, you know, his music's actually pretty good. And, you know, their singer, she's really great. So let's, let's see what we can do here. Maybe we'll get them in. There you go. You've built that relationship and you've stayed top of mind. So now you have better chances of getting booked there. Now, obviously, if it comes down to an artist who can draw 100 people versus an artist who draws five, that's still going to be a no-brainer. But the better you set yourself up in advance of needing to book these shows, the, the higher your chances are going to be for getting those shows. I could not agree more. I, oh my God, man. I think if you are able to nurture those relationships and befriend those promoters, I agree. I think you're going to be a step ahead of everyone else. But not only that, I think that gives you a trial run to put these systemizations into place. And then when things really do come, like, so coffee shops open, they're good to go. Then it's going to be the, the venues that start the clubs, the smaller clubs and stuff like that. Those are going to start coming back. And if you can work your circuit through that, through the, all of the opening, like the demand for live music has never been greater right now. And so anything that you can do to like, warm that water even just a little bit if that's if that's managers at coffee shops right now that could be talent buyers at smaller venues and then that could be tour managers for medium-sized tours and it just scales up exponentially from there so i love that perspective that you have thank you yeah and you're absolutely right about demand never being higher for example, I worked sound for one live stream over summer. It was a July 4th show that my friend, he's a uh, Parks and Rec director for a small town here in Vermont. And uh, I, we go way back. I quote unquote managed his band in high school. <laughs> Never call yourself a manager when you're in high school. You have no idea. We what all you're know doing. what you mean. It's okay. It's a safe yeah. space here. And um, yeah, good, good. But so he asked me to run sound for their live stream. And obviously I was like, well, duh, like I want to work a show. It's been, you know, I think it was February was the last show I went to. And um, that was one of the best nights all summer because I was having a blast. 
I was mixing on headphones in a little side room off the stage, which was an outdoor show, but I had a, a little room. And so the whole night, the only two people that were in that room were me and my friend who was running the show and masks and all that, obviously. And so it was super safe. And uh, it was just a blast. And I was like, man, I'm working right now. And I love this, like, <laughs> which is ideal. If you're working into music, you better love it. But just imagine if we'd had an audience there, they would have loved it too. And, you know, we had a streaming audience, but it's not the same. Like as, as fun as it is to watch live streams, it's really not the same. There's still a disconnect there. Uh, and yeah. yeah, I think it's something to be addressed, but maybe our, our technology, maybe while it's great, it's maybe not up to that qualification of giving the same experience, nor would I expect it to because live shows are special for that reason, especially. Yeah, exactly. And as cool as this show was, um, or any live stream, you have to keep in mind that most people are going to be watching on their phones. And that's just, you know, no bueno. I can sit here in front of my iMac and watch a live stream with my studio monitors. I'm like, oh, this sounds killer. Like, this is awesome. Obviously, only if they actually sound killer, if they're just, you know, if they have a pro setup. Like, Ballyhoo's live streams are absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. I, by far, my favorite live streams that I've seen all year were Ballyhoo's. And they did one, I think, almost every month. Um, but anyway, to, to get back to the topic of what should be planned for touring, and I've touched a little bit on several of these, but really when you're planning out any tour, you have to ask yourself a few questions. The first one is how many shows do you want to play? So that's going to affect the length of the tour to an extent. So, you know, if you're just starting out and this is your first tour i would definitely recommend a weekend warrior tour just doing you know two or three shows over the weekend but if you've done a couple of those maybe you can look at a week or a week or two i wouldn't go much longer than that just because how much everything is changing right now you don't want to book a one or two month tour even if that's what you were doing before the pandemic because you might get a week into that tour and then find out that they're shutting things down again so if you plan a two-week tour it's like okay bummer we lost half our shows if you planned a two-month tour you just lost seven-eighths of your work that's no good so start off small is my recommendation but you still have to figure out how many shows you want to play and then like i said that affects how long you want the tour to be and that's not necessarily the same because you do want to plan in off days especially right now having off days is going to be really important so you can get some rest and keep your immune system up obviously I would not recommend going out and playing shows until you've received the vaccine just for your safety as well as others, but you still will want to keep your immune system as good as possible. So make sure you're having an off day, at least, you know, every second or third day um, or after every two or three shows, I should rephrase that to be a little more clear. That way you can truly be your best for the shows and have a high quality performance. So you're not letting people down who remembered live shows as being so amazing and you can stay healthy. I feel like that's a critical bullet point in this. And it was before COVID hit, but especially now, I feel like your not only just like your physical health, but part of that is your mental health too. Um, it can, you don't want to be dragged out during this process, yep. especially when it's in like a trial phase of coming back. Yeah. And also keep in mind that, you know, if you were touring, 
10 months out of the year or something before the pandemic between your own tours and maybe you're doing tech work for another artist or tour management or whatever it is you do. That's great. You have the capability to be away from home so long. But if you've now been home with your loved ones for a year, like whether that's your partner or your kids or whoever, you're going to need some adjustment to going back out on the road. You don't want to say, I've been home for 10 months. Now I'm going to be gone for two months. Like that's, you know, for your mental health, like you're saying, Richard, that's not going to be a great idea. Um, And that was one of the reasons too that I quit touring, not necessarily mental health, but but just that I didn't want to be away from my girlfriend, now my fiance, for so long. You know, I was like, I thought my life was going to be touring and you know, doing front of house and tour management, but my priorities have shifted. Like now I want to stay home. (laughs) I have to recognize that. And so that's why I stopped touring. It's been almost five years now. Um, but like as much as I miss touring and warp tour, it's also one of the best decisions that I ever made because yeah, I love touring, but at the same time now I'm just like, it's nice to be in bed at 1030 on a Friday night. (laughs) I should say I'm only 27, but it's nice to go to bed early once in a while. Um, For real, I was in bed at like 8 p.m. last night. It was awesome. Oh, I, I'm a little bit jealous, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> uh, I think we were still watching How I Met Your Mother reruns at 8 o'clock That's last reasonable, night. though. That's reasonable. Yeah, it, it was worth it. It was worth it. Um, uh, uh, Barney and Robin just got together. So. Oh man, okay. The the we're, climb is on. Like right season there. five. Oh yeah, Professor Ted is in the house. <laughs> um, anyway, all that nerding out about old TV shows aside, which makes me feel old since that show was on the air like six years ago. Yeah, still, a little bit. Um, the next, yeah, <laughs> the next question you want to ask is where you want to play, which again relies on the previous questions because. When I say where, I'm saying what cities are markets. And you don't want to say, okay, I'm going to play 14 shows in three weeks, and I'm going to do 14 shows. Each one's going to be further west. Because then you're going to be out in Wisconsin or California, depending on how many shows you play and how far apart they are. And then you have to drive all the way back. You, you need to make a loop. I know for big tours, that's not necessarily the case, but that's because they're flying in their people and their gear, getting picked up by a bus, driving all through the tour, and then at the end of the tour, flying home, flying their gear back to the warehouse, and the bus goes back to wherever they're going. So a lot of times, the bus will actually be part of the decision on where they're starting the tour. So bandwagons, I don't know how many people are familiar with bandwagons, but they're like a smaller, not quite tour bus thing, but they're not an RV either. They're a little bigger. Those get rented out from Indiana. So a lot of artists who use bandwagons will try to start and end their tour near Indiana because that means... You know, like if they have to rent the bus or the the bandwagon rather for an extra three days to drive it out to Southern California, they have to rent it for an extra three days. They have to pay the driver for an extra three days. They probably have to pay a second driver because those drives are so long. That all adds up. The gas alone. In many cases, yeah. In many cases, it's cheaper just to buy everyone a plane ticket to Chicago and have the guy 
or the girl who's driving the bandwagon drive from Indiana over to Chicago and pick them up. Same thing when they're ending the tour. Then there's other companies like Green Vans. They have some locations all over the place, but those are vans, not buses. Now, obviously, if you're just starting out, you're probably going to be either renting a van locally or just taking, you know, your SUV or whatever it is that you can fill up. And so you don't really have to worry about that as much, but you still have to worry about making that loop. Um, The loop here is crucial because anyone who hasn't done like a loop tour realizes how big of a of a headache it is like it's so it's so nice to be done the last show right you're you finished out the last the last show and then you're like oh cool well i got two days before i get back home that i'm gonna be stuck in in your suv you know if you're driving yourself or whatever and it is just like such a deflator on what was this wonderful experience especially once things start coming back fully, I feel like it's going to be even more extreme. Yeah, absolutely. And I got to say, you know, not every tour needs to be a loop. Again, if you have the budget to fly, then that's one solution. Or if you want to play California, yeah. yeah, If you want to play California and you've never played California before, okay, fly out there. Don't drive from Nashville or Vermont or wherever to California fly out there, rent a vehicle with your basic gear and have a plan in place to get the other gear you need. If you're doing a full band tour, this is obviously a lot more difficult than if it's just you and an acoustic Mm -hmm. guitar. Um, But if you're doing a full band tour, if you are working with hired guns, you know, don't hire Nashville musicians, hire California musicians, have a couple days of rehearsals, and then they have all their gear there. If you have your own band and obviously you don't want to replace them with hired guns because they're your band, then you say, okay, you know, what are the essentials? What can we pack and fly with? And what can we either rent or ask the venue to backline or ask the other bands to provide? You know, say, hey, we're playing a show with you in two weeks and uh, we're flying in. Like, is it possible to use your drum kit? We'll have, you know, snare and cymbals. We'll have those but we would really love to use your drum kit if you're cool with that. If they say yes, awesome. I feel like this circles back to where we were talking at the beginning of like, this is a crucial point when you need to have, this is where you should have your input list. You should have your stage plot in hand because these are the things that you can refer back to and say, oh, we're renting all of our gear for this weekend or across the country that we're flying in for. Do we have everything here? Like, do we have our our whole kit? Do we have our backing tracks? If you're running any of those, do we have enough guitars? Do we have enough amps? Like it's easier to have that whole list right in front of you. That's like absolute instead of having to like re-remember everything when you have all these other tasks going on. So it's all hand in hand together. Yeah, absolutely. And I got to say, I'm a big fan of cutting down on your essential gear as much as possible. So, you know, you could be playing small bars and clubs and have an 810 bass cab. You don't need that. Get a sans amp or some kind of pedal or get an audio interface and uh, like a MacBook Air that will run STL Tone Hub and put your bass tones through Tone Hub and just have that out go to the snake that goes to front of house. 
that all will make it so much easier for you when you do have to travel because eventually that will happen to say, okay, cool. I have my base. I have my cable. I have my tuner pedal. I have my laptop and I have my interface. Good. That's my rig. And then, you know, same thing for guitarists, although it's a little more difficult to do that. You know, you could get like a, um, uh, a pod farm mm -hmm. or a camper. If you're uh, rolling in it, get a Kemper. I did see they um, just or, came out with a Kemper stage rack for a guitarist. So it's like a whole pedal. That board. is awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, you could also go the Tone Hub route for that. However, it's a little more difficult to switch things on the fly. So that would really only work in combination with a more traditional pedal board. Um, and then you can switch tones on the tone hub between songs i don't think they have midi capability yet mm. if they have midi capability you could literally sync everything to your backtracking and have scene changes in there and that would be amazing but uh i haven't needed that yet because tone hub just came out in march right when the <laughs> pandemic started perfect so that's timing. not something i've explored yet <laughs> yeah perfect timing for everyone to get back in the studio <laughs> though to be fair well i will anyway i will say that like the I think this time has been a good example to also show that live shows, like the elements that you can pull from the studio and translating them to your live show, I think is going to become a more, not only acceptable thing, but a more practiced thing in general. I know a lot of the solo artists, especially in the indie pop world, that's where I'm, I'm more uh, familiar with. People are, are taking like main stage which is just like Apple's version, live logic version and dropping yep. their tracks in there, bringing their interface and giving four feeds to front of house. They're set up their sound check. They know what their stuff is going to sound like. And obviously that's a pretty like niche example of an artist doing that. But well, no matter if you're a solo artist or band, that application can still apply. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, uh, Nine Inch Nails uses main stage. So that's definitely not super niche. I, I have seen a lot more artists using Ableton True. for this purpose lately. Um, I actually know one band who uses Pro Tools, but that's only because they needed video sync with it. They're an instrumental band who has guest vocalists. And so for their live show, they have videos of their vocalists singing the song and have it on a projector behind them. So they needed the video capability and went with Pro Tools. That's so But cool. I think otherwise they probably, yeah, it's awesome. I haven't actually seen it, unfortunately, but they've told me about it. I've talked to them and it, like, I've seen videos of it and it looks really That's cool. So cool. But yeah, a lot of artists use Ableton because it is a little more flexible than main stage. I can't remember what exactly the limitation was in main stage. I was looking into it a few years ago and myself also decided that for people I'm working with, I would suggest Ableton. But at the same time, if it works, it works. Exactly. And Ableton's a lot more expensive than Mainstage because Mainstage is, I think, 30 bucks mm -hmm. or something last I checked. So it's super affordable and you can install it on any Mac that's associated with your account, whereas Ableton has other restrictions. Yeah, I mean, whatever the software is, the point is to minimize your setup so that you can then like maximize the return that you get from it and being able to go minimal and kind of bare bones on some stuff, I feel like is going to be really important, especially for these tours that kick off when things first come back. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't want to be that band who gets out there and everything falls apart on day one, which I have a story about that in a second. Um, but the last question 
you should ask yourself before you start planning your tour is what kind of venues you want to play. So, you know, I was saying earlier, coffee houses are probably a good bet if you can do an acoustic show or at least a stripped down show. But you could also choose, you know, clubs, 100, 200, 300 cap clubs um, on the smaller range or bars or, you know, depending on what you do, if it's late fall and it's not too cold yet because you're in Southern California or Arizona or Florida or wherever, you could even try to do outdoor shows and keep that going. And, you know, there's several different venue types that would do outdoor shows. But uh, one of my favorite bands, Neapolitics, they played a show here in Vermont on their 10-year anniversary tour. And it wasn't announced with the tour. I was like, that's strange. Like, it's not on their social media. It's not on their website, tour listing. It's not anywhere. But it's on the venue site in our local radio station. Like, okay. So it turned out it was basically a tech rehearsal with an audience. <laughs> and it was a really fun show. But their new single, they started it twice, and the tracks just did not work. So then they said, okay, well, we're going to play it acoustic for the first time ever because it was the first time ever they were playing it anyway. <laughs> so it was a really fun show, and there were a couple other glitches. But for this, because people have been waiting for so long, you want to set the bar high and keep it high do a tech rehearsal at home before you get to some random venue where there's 700 people waiting for you and then half your songs don't start properly. Please, yeah. please do a tech and, rehearsal at home. You know, home. for other cases, it's totally fine to do what they did. Like this was in 2019 before anybody knew what COVID was. So for them, it was totally fine because it wasn't really advertised and tickets were a dollar and all that stuff. It's like, okay, no big deal. Like who cares? It, it happens. At least that was for me, because I recognize it as a tech rehearsal. Right. <laughs> the one bummer was they didn't have any of their merch that they had for the 10-year tour at that show. They didn't have merch at all. So I was kind of like, they could have made some money, because I totally would have bought a shirt, and I'm sure other people would have too. But I'm also assuming that they probably didn't want people to say, hey, you know, why isn't this show on the t-shirt? Like, it says 10-year anniversary tour. Did you forget about us? So... You know, that kind of stuff. And uh, maybe it just came down to they didn't want to have it shipped here. They wanted to have it shipped to the start of the tour, which was New York or something. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great example as to how to, I don't know, stuff. It's not if stuff is going to go wrong during your live show or like your show's <laughs> back. Like it's just going to be when. It's going to be yeah. signal not coming through correctly. It's going to be having feedback problems all night because you have a monitor engineer that doesn't know what they're doing or a front of house engineer who is running front of house monitors and a live stream. Or there's just there's going to be a lot of moving parts, both on the venue end, on your own artist and on the consumer end. Mm -hmm. People are going to have to be going through protocol. So being able to dummy proof your setup and like make it like solid stone shut of what is going to happen and when it's going to happen. If you can solidify all that now while you're still at home, whoever's listening to this, I know you're at home in your room where you probably make your music anyways, or you're in your car, whatever, but do it now so that then when, like you said, James, at the start of this episode, when things do come back, you already have that in place. And then you're nurturing relationships with the promoters that are going to get you the gigs and you're not going to be scrambling, trying to figure out how to put your backing tracks in order or how to get band rehearsal set up or when to order. Like you won't have to worry about that and you'll be ahead of the curve instead. 
Yeah, definitely. And on that note, you know, be prepared for the worst. And this ranges from little things to big things. So starting with the little things, have a checklist. So, for example, if you have an acoustic guitar with a battery in it, have a checklist that says you checked the battery level. You also have a backup battery. I've seen that. I was working a show once, and this girl's guitar started distorting really badly. And um, she said on the mic, I was running sound for it, she said, like, hey, can you guys cut off the distortion? And I was like, oh, no, she didn't. She just called us out. I'm like, uh, no, we can't. But if you have another battery, you can replace the battery in your guitar. It's coming from there. And she goes, this has a battery? Oh, my And I was like, God. oh, Oh my god! She got another guitar, plugged it in, worked wonderfully. So the fact that that um, having a guitar battery replacement <laughs> is the one of the first things on your checklist is definitely like a qualification test of if you've done front of house sound ever. Yes, <laughs> here's one that's happened to me. I was playing bass at a show and I stepped on the tuner, and the tuner springs popped out, and like I no longer had a tuner. So. I, and I couldn't turn it off, so it was muted. So I had to unplug the tuner and plug it into the amp and then borrow the guitarist's tuner. Like, make sure your tuner is not falling apart. Now, to be fair, I had borrowed the tuner, so I felt even worse because it wasn't my tuner that I broke. But I think that further you know, shows maybe, the example here, if, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. <laughs> I, I guess maybe don't loan your tuner to someone else if it's about to break. <laughs> um. But yeah, there's, there's all sorts of things like that. Um, have a gear manifest that you can check off each item that you're packing into your van every night or whatever mode of transport you have so you don't forget anything. That's really important. You know? You'll almost never run out of a venue without your gear if you have a checklist saying, okay, I got my guitar, I got my cables, I got my amp, we have our merch. The drummer has this. The drummer has that. The bass player has this. The bass player has themselves. Okay, good. <laughs> the bass player is not in the Subtle venue anymore. On He's in the van. Out here right now. <laughs> James coming from blood. I had. To, oh yeah, I had to uh, make that Glenn Fricker moment <laughs> happen. Um, but then looking at the big picture, you should always have a little extra money in your budget. And obviously, the next thing in planning your tour is going to be setting your budget. Have an emergency fund that has enough money to get you home in the worst case scenario. So if that means you have to fly everyone home with all the gear because your van broke down, you got to do that. Or if it means you have to buy a new van or rent a van or whatever to get home, you have to do that. Um, this actually happened to me. I was visiting family in Germany when the pandemic hit and I had to get home, but I had an emergency fund for travel and so I was like, okay, you know, kind of stings to pay $400 for a flight tomorrow, but I can do it. And uh, it turns out I didn't need to because the flight later in the week that I was originally booked on did end up flying. But that would have only gotten me to Boston and the bus company that goes from Boston to Vermont had shut down. This way I flew directly into Vermont and I got my money back from the other airline that I didn't fly on. So it's like, okay, I didn't even really spend any extra. It was like 90 bucks more. No big deal. I'm home. I'm safe. I'm healthy. Like, <laughs> yeah, just that was worth like it. what a sinking feeling it would have, it would have been to be out, out of the country. Something catastrophic happens and there is nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Like there is no worse feeling. 
Absolutely. I just saw a uh, post on Instagram from one of my friends yesterday. She's a really amazing photographer and uh, I can name drop in this case because she's always posting pictures, but um, she's done work with Ellie Goulding, Frank Carter and the Rattlesnakes and uh, Architects. She just did some promo shots for them. So like big names over in the UK. Although I would say Architects and Ellie Goulding are probably big pretty, pretty much, much everywhere. everywhere. Frank yeah. Carter's more niche in uh, the UK and Europe. But she was on a tour with a band and uh, they were just in their little bubble and didn't really see what was going on. And then all of a sudden they were like, well, our shows might not be happening. And then they were parked next to a grocery store and they saw the giant lines and realized, whoa, like this is actually happening. And then two days later they were home. And within a week it just went from, okay, you know what, everything's fine. We've got some isolated cases too. Everybody stay home. Because Europe took the lockdown way more seriously than pretty much anywhere in the States, except maybe New York. Because I think New York had that moment of like, oh, we messed up. Yep. And <laughs> so they took it seriously. Yep. But yeah, it, it's definitely a big change. And making sure you have the funds to get home is really important because you know, it doesn't have to be a global pandemic. Like I said, your van could blow up or you could be out there and one of the members has a family member die or get very ill and be in the hospital that they have to attend to that. Then you also have to make the tough choice. You know, is this person, I don't want to say expendable, but can we go on without them? So, you know, if you have two guitarists and it's one of your guitarists, like, okay, you know what? Can we continue the tour and finish off this last week? Or do we all drive home with them? Like, what's more important for the band right now? Do we pick our friend? Or do we say, good luck, fly home, we're going on without you? And thinking about these priorities before you're faced with these issues, like being able to preemptively think about, okay, worst case scenario, what are we going to do? It's easier to do that when you are disconnected from that moment, you're spaced out, you're thinking logically rather than having that situation come up as it happens and you have stuff that you need to do because you planned out whatever event it is, whatever show, whatever date, whatever venue, if it's an off day, like you have stuff in motion. And so when something comes up and it halts all of that, there will be also like some, some flutter waves behind that because of your unpreparedness for an emergency situation. So I feel like that's important in the process too. Yeah, definitely. I, and I think that can't be understated. To throw another example out there, one of my friend's bands uh, about five years ago, they had their trailer broken into and everything in the trailer was stolen. And, you know, that really sucks for any artist. But they decided to keep going on the tour. And I think they had insurance, so they should be covered. I, I really hope so. I don't know how it all ended. Uh, but they kept going on the tour, which I was really glad for because the day they were playing in San Diego where I was living at the time was the singer's birthday. And we'd planned to like bake a, a vegan birthday cake and all that for him because he's vegan. And so that like cheered him up. But one of their guitarists said, you know what? I'm not going to continue. Like I need to go home and, uh, you know, I, I can't deal with this. And they kicked that guitarist out, which might seem a little harsh, but if you think about the whole band saying, hey, we all went through this together, we're going to get through this together, we're not going to give up, 
And then one of the members says like, oh, screw that. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to go home and bail. Like that's a slap to the faces of all the other members. So like I said, it, it might seem harsh, but if you were in that situation, you'd probably do the same. I know I would. I would say like, if you're not going to be here for us, like what's more important, you know? And obviously mental health is really important. I'm not saying don't pay attention to your mental health, but don't bail on your bandmates either. There's a push and pull there. And especially if you're going to be on the road with these people, you have to know that it's, it becomes a very like closely bonded relationship. And I mean, even if you're not, if you're not bandmates, you just, you're bringing a road manager with you. Like, I feel like the same rule still applies where you need to know where your limits are. You need to know at, where's the line in the sand if something goes down and how are we going to handle it and know that before you have to handle it because that it sucks, but that's not the first time I have ever heard of that situation. It's way more common than a lot of people think. So, yeah, but being able to be, be like stout in your, in your values around it and you're going to do what you say you're going to do and you know where your limit is, knowing all of that beforehand is crucial. Yeah. And I, I got to add too, you know, the last year I was on Warp Tour, I left the tour, but that was only after I talked with the person who was leading our team and said, look, I'm not having a good time out here. I know we have people as backups that can jump in for me. I am here until you no longer need me. But if you can get someone out here, the sooner the better. And so then they were able to get someone out there within 48 hours. So I did two more shows, had a blast, had a tearful goodbye with all my friends from my team as well as other teams because Warped Tour is like one big family. And I flew home, you know. But I didn't just say, peace, I'm out. Like some people actually did that on our teams. Um, and it was really frustrating to all of a sudden be down a person because they just literally bailed overnight. Like just at the end of one day, they're gone. You're like, where'd so-and-so go? And it's like, oh, they left. Like, don't do that to people. If you got to go, that's fine. But be an adult and talk about it. And, you know, you don't have to tell people everything that's going on, but say, hey, like, I'm having some issues right now. I can't be here anymore. This is what I got to do, but I don't want to screw you over. So what do you need from me? Exactly. And, you know, in my situation, since I knew they had backups, I knew it would just be a matter of time until somebody was there. And um, so that's how we made it happen. But that's a lot different when you're in a band versus doing sponsorship where you're working for a company that, has other people that they can send out other employees if you're in a band and you're the only person who knows those parts that's going to be an issue you need to find somebody else who can step in and do those parts now now maybe you're lucky and you're touring with another band and their guitarist can step in and play those parts for you but you know what say hey i gotta leave and go home and deal with some mental health stuff I talked to so-and-so from the other band and they said they'll fill in. I'm going to teach them all the songs in the next two days and then I'm going to fly home. You know, something like that. So that way you're not just leaving your band without one of their guitarists in like just 
the middle of nowhere. I think it was like New Mexico or something. Oh my God. Not the place you want to be left without a plan, you know? And man, I think you're right. Like having the maturity to communicate what is really going on instead of just trying to like save face because instead of what happens, like if you just peace out and you ghost on everyone because you're worried that they're not going to approve of why you want to leave or whatever, then that is just a bad feedback loop because now they're actually going to be mad at you for leaving. When if you were just like upfront, if you were cool about it and you're like, Hey, this is going on. These are my duties. I get that. But what if I did this and I did this, would you guys let me go do this? Or like if that situation comes up, there's always a way out that you don't have to burn the bridge. And especially when live events start coming back, people's words are going to be what starts securing shows, starts securing safety for artists to do these shows and to get you guys paid for playing live again. Like that's going to be the foundation of, of everything is how good is your word. That's going to be yeah. what is judged off of you and how the rest of your future post pandemic will look for you. Yeah. Exactly. And that all goes back to building relationships with promoters and venue talent buyers now based on the plan you've made. So you know what cities to target, what venues to target and find out who runs the booking for those, uh, those venues and build those relationships now. Oh my God, James. It's so good, man. I just, (laughs) I don't think that I'm going to have I'm not going to add anything else of value to this conversation, man. Come on, James. That's incredible. I just, I'm so glad that you are able to share your insight and your experience with all of this, because I think you're right. I think that we're going to see a a gold rush of live shows start cooking up and it's going to be messy out there for the people who don't prepare for it. Well, okay. So James, I think that this is probably a good point to wrap the conversation, but I want to know something else. Okay. Where can the audience find out more about you? Good question. First of all, uh, thanks for taking the time to have me on the show. It's been a blast. Of course. Um, And I think there probably would be a lot you could add based on your experience. To find Bandhive, you can find us at bandhive.rocks. That's our special little domain because bandhive.com was $3,000. Not worth <laughs> and it. And so we said, nope, we're not going for that. Dot rocks is way cooler anyways. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, keeping it metal. Let's be real. And so, yeah, bandhive.rocks is our website. You can find our Facebook community at better.band slash group. Another little special domain there. <laughs> little short domain. And uh, we're also on Instagram where that's our most active social media and we are bandhive.rocks on there as well. The the period not spelled out, obviously. So those are our main things. And then if you go to better.band slash listen, you will find a listing of all the major podcast directories we're in. So, you know, Apple being the big one, Spotify, Amazon, Google, all the major ones. We're, I think, 12 or 15 of them. So those are all out there. And if anyone wants to uh, connect with us, the group I mentioned would be the best place to get involved with a community. And that's part of the band Hive name is we want this to be a community-focused thing. And uh, you can also reach out to us 
my email is james at bandhive.rocks or if you just want to email us in general which will also go to my two co-hosts support at bandhive.rocks i love it man so prepared so organized so clean always always so clean um i'm gonna make sure that (laughs) i put the links to everything i'm gonna i'll go back through and make sure i get everything and i'll put links in like the the show notes if you really want to go digging for them it'll pop up on the on whatever streaming app you're in currently and you should be able to find james and the band hive up there uh including the podcast which i just want to say is one of my favorite podcasts um i think you guys have a good time together and your personalities mix and just the insight and I don't know. The mental space that you guys have is incredible. So I hope that this can get shared and and other people can enjoy it too. Okay. So James, any last words that you'd like to, for the audience? Well, first of all, thank you again for having me on the show. And uh, second of all, thank you for not scaring people away from my podcast by mentioning all the terrible dad jokes I make. (laughs) (laughs) This is the cliffhanger right here. This is, if you're looking for dad jokes, then we also got you covered there. But you'll have to listen for more. (laughs) This little teaser. Uh. Okay, well, perfect. James, thank you again. It's a treat talking to you. And again, everyone, go check them out, please. Like, they they do incredible stuff. So go take a listen. Uh, Links are in the show notes, as always. And James, we'll chat later, dude. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Richard. I really appreciate it. Of course.